Damn, this works. I can put elevator music and shit. Awesome. What's up, Lollipop? I seem to have rugged when I uh, launched it the first time. Not too sure why. No problem. That was it's, weird. Yeah, it's spaces. They, I always have issues, usually. Let me send yeah, a few well, uh, links out. Fun enough. I was just like, because I'm testing out, I don't know if you know BlueStacks. I do not. It's basically, it's a platform that like emulates uh, mobile on a PC. That way you yeah. can have spaces launched on your computer. No shit. That's why I've yeah, always had that issue. Yeah, so I figured I'd use BlueStacks and it's super useful because that way you, you actually have like a decent mic and you don't have to use like your phone's mic or your earphone mics. And I don't know. It's, it seemed like a good idea. Plus, you can put a sound pad in the back, which is not for everyone, but you know, <laughs> whatever. But nice. okay. So um, I have, I like, I've noted down a couple talking points, but you know, at the end of the day, I think, oh, first of all, I had one question Can we make ponchos an honorary trait of Bandito Dow? Any odds of that? We'll have to see. <laughs> We've had strict requirements, but you know, shit happens like uh, Bonquito Dow just kind of came out of nowhere, started formally organizing. Uh, I think true. it really comes down to the growth. If Because uh, We've actually talked a lot about how we're going to scale or grow the Bandito DAO, and I always get hung up on trying to have some type of centralized management or control by accepting and broadening, like accepting people into our channel or broadening some of the scope. What it kind of puts the original Bandito DAO in is almost a management type role where instead of being banditos, we're just kind of coordinating and collaborating with a bunch of different groups, and we're not able to really act as autonomously. So by the Bonquito DAO actually coming out of nowhere and starting up their own and operating pretty much autonomously, it's why I've kind of been empowering them and uh, pushing them is it creates the same, uh, really, it expands the culture, expands Banditos as a whole without any of that operational extra work that's kind of there that limits scaling. So I'm actually more interested in figuring out how can we uh, empower and enable more groups to kind of build that culture themselves. And, and by doing so, I think it will create a more scalable uh, system for the Bandito culture. Yeah, for sure. The, I mean, it's like the Bandito DAO is really interesting because I think it's kind of, it's, in, it's one of the only DAOs I think you're really part of that you've promoted that much in a sense, given it's really like your PFP and everything, PFP that you've burned since. Like, yeah. Well, no, it's actually, so I originally minted uh, SMB and I actually paper handed a uh, space warrior here to uh, Soul Big Brain before he was actually even known as Soul Big Brain. I found out several months later when he moved it to cold storage. Um, but after a few weeks I did, and everything started pumping for SMB, I ended up, uh, buying in and i decided that because uh, i knew milts from a different group i just love the narrative of the banditos there's no second best attribute uh and they were just going around having fun and raiding and you know i saw it was more than just being part of monkey dow it was a narrative it was a brand it was something unique that only they had and so when i joined that was really my focus was this is a smaller tighter knit group 
uh, all just kind of focused on having fun. Most of them, were, uh, most of the guys were in their uh, mid thirties, early thirties or so. So it was a little bit older demographic as well. Uh, and really it was just a unique narrative that we could be the bad guys. We could go around raiding. We can just fuck around and have fun. And everything was on, uh, was in on character. Uh, and that's one thing I really just, I loved the flexibility that narrative gives and why I've empowered it so much and just really embraced the bandito is I could be the bad guy. I could be the good guy. I could be really almost anything. And it really fits uh, that narrative. And so it became a great brand. And then you got the sombrero, which really hasn't been embraced uh, in web three as an icon by anyone else. And it is very iconic. It's something that you, you uh, that stands out. It's loud. And so by having that as an icon, it really just allowed more visibility to just build that brand, have fun. And it was ultimately something people I think really wanted to be a part of, because at the end of the day, when you're in a bull market, sure, it's fun making money. But when you're in a bear market uh, and shit's crashing at the end of the day, you're not making money. So what else is bringing people together? What's bringing people there? And, you know, the camaraderie, the fun, just fucking around, things like that. I think that stuff has just as much power as uh, making ROI. And so building that culture and expanding on that, I thought was a unique thing that we could do. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned the bad guy idea because I think that definitely in like the recent, I want to say like maybe two three months with what well, with like starting with the ice knife burn, I think you're seeing kind of like the guy who burned ice knife. But then there was all of the all the Frank D God stuff, and then token guys as well. I think there are a lot of people who see you to a certain extent as definitely like a bad guy who tears other people down. And I'm kind of curious if you see that in a sense of like, are you? How does that bring something to the space, really, compared to like when people will tell you, why aren't you building something? Well, I think it comes from just differing perspectives. Um, there is a very large number of people that both, uh, both see Frank and Tokenomics Guy as bad actors in the space or um, not really building what people think Web3 should be. And I found that, I, I actually found, figured that out a lot with uh, going after Frank is even though there wasn't a lot of people uh, speaking out against Frank publicly, I started getting a ton of DMs and I started getting a lot of pro smaller project founders going, you know, you know, we really have had this issue or anytime we've spoken out against uh, Frank, all of a sudden magic Eden stopped responding to us. Uh, and I started seeing just a trend that, you know, I couldn't validate or verify, but I went along with that. It sounded like there was a lot of people that wanted to speak out, but they were uh, fearful that, it would hurt their ability to either build their project, build their reputation. And you saw this because I think the majority of the uh, established ecosystem, most of the projects that were uh, larger at the time, um, the projects and their founders all respected Frank because the majority of these projects were all still focused on being more or less businesses. And all of them were entrepreneurs that really respected the grind that, uh, Frank had put forward to really build what he had. But I think the issue with that is that there was a lot of people in the community that didn't identify with that because the majority of the community aren't entrepreneurs. They aren't people that are walking the same line as Frank. And they were a bit frustrated because they may see a, they may be looking at the space a bit differently. 
And they feared speaking out because if they spoke out and let's say they strongly supported a project who the founder of that project uh, was supportive of Frank. Well, if they were trying to build a name for themselves and they spoke out against Frank publicly, well, now the project lead of a project that they may look up to or have significant holdings in may now not look as highly upon that person. They may think that they're just causing trouble or uh, that they're misguided or whatever. And so I saw a lot of people that wanted to speak out, but couldn't. And that's really what kind of drove the amount of attacks and things that I, I kind of threw at Frank um, was because I started getting a lot of feedback in that area. Now, the question of what's good and what's bad, well, you know, attacking people just to attack people, yeah, most people would say that's toxic or that's bad, but on a different perspective, what we started seeing is the ecosystem really starting to consolidate across multiple different players, groups like Magic Eden. Um, and you started to see, like I was uh, talking with, uh, uh, going after DGen News as well. You started to see almost all these pieces coming together where there was infrastructure being built. It was really trying to box us in. And you see that with Open Creator Protocol with Magic Eden. They have a foothold on the ecosystem due to owning a majority of the liquidity. And they're trying to maintain that. And quite honestly, if you don't play by their rules... Um, and you can't get listed, you're going to struggle to actually get the impact and growth of your project. So we were, from a different perspective, I saw the ecosystem going a much more centralized approach. And how do you break from that? Well, you tear down the centralized uh, entities as much as you can, and you give uh, people see that there is a different way of operating. And that from that perspective, I think I was doing something rather beneficial. Rather than just playing nice and letting the ecosystem go that centralized route, uh, I think we broke away some from that and showed people you don't have to play that game. We can still do other things, and guess what? You can still be supported. Yeah, it might not be as easy or might not have uh, – uh, you still may have difficulties with Magic Eden or other groups, but if we can get people to align that there are different ways of doing this, then you can still get that uh, community support. And I think a lot of it goes back to the business world and professionalism where everyone thinks we have to play nice in the sandbox. We all have to play together. I'm sorry, in Web3, you don't. This place is, if you don't like what someone's doing, you don't have to play by the rules. You can go do your own thing. It's not like the uh, business world where you have a market and that market's just uh, is uh, usually based on jurisdiction and you're restricted in what you can do. In Web3, if you don't like who you're dealing with, if you don't like the people that you're talking to, it's as easy as clicking a uh, Discord button to go to a new channel. It's not like if you have a job and you don't like your coworkers to find a new job, you have to actually find one that's you can actually uh, that's close to you or that's remote that you could work at that aligns to your skills, go through the hiring process and uh, actually have that actually get that new job. It's a huge number of barriers and jumps that. You don't have that in Web3 necessarily. And so I see things like oppression, uh, at, and this is why I joke around about being a bad guy, being a dictator, being a cult leader, and things like that, because in Web3, I only see oppression happening as if you choose to be oppressed. Um, and you can basically tell people to fuck off and create your own system, your own uh, uh, group, and build from there. It's not one economy. We are building multiple fractionalized economies and ecosystems. And you can start your own. You can join others. You can find a culture that fits you. 
It's not like in, uh, again, the traditional world where if you don't follow certain social norms, you're, uh, you're canceled or kicked or removed. Um, you can find a group who aligns with you. And that's what you generally, I think, see. There's a lot of people that others may not agree with and they may talk negatively about them, but you don't see any of those uh, communities that are disregarded or disliked going away. They just work in their own environment with their own groups and they try to grow from that. Yeah, of course. I think like, what's interesting about this is it's really about, like, I think a lot of people in Web3 will tell you about like, the communities and the culture and everything. And you seem to be very much more focused on the community side, whereas you'll look at Frank and it's that business side of really making money. And it kind of leads on to like one of the questions that I really wanted to ask you is why, what kind of drives you to this, to these intentions and to like your beliefs? Because a lot of the people here are mostly here for money. And a lot of people here would probably argue that investing in, for example, D gods would have given you more money than investing in other community projects. So I imagine it's not money that drives you. What do you, what brought you to like wanting to push these narratives? So I think it, the, and this is why I push back a lot on legal entities. I think it's a very misguided view to think that these are businesses or that the optimi, optimal collaborative model is a business just because people like to make money and you can make money there. Uh, I like to use the parallel that it's, it's like uh, trying to operate as a collaborative unit of a family, as a business. If you had your wife and gave her quarterly performance reviews, if you uh, measured her based on her ability to pull in revenue uh, when she's a stay-at-home mom, um, if you are just having that logical framework of just looking at it objectively of metrics, numbers, and uh, revenue, you're missing a huge element of what actually is needed to make that uh, family successful. Now, yes, you can run a family like a business, and many do have family businesses, um, but that is not the only way to do it. And I think that you're missing the human element when that is tends to be your core focus. And I quite honestly think Frank is, I think it's a very short-term and not sustainable model. Because what I think you're going to see is, uh, I believe Frank right now is kind of putting a noose around his neck. Because when your focus is on floor price, what you're doing is you're uh, alienating a very large group of people to join. Because yes, people did uh, make a lot of money when it ran up from 10 soul up to 500 soul. But you know what? We're in a bear market. There's going to be a bull market sometime, who knows when. Uh, but people are going to come back into the space. And when people come back into the space, they're going to be looking at where can they actually have impact? Where can they uh, actually do something? And, you know, most people are not coming in with 500 soul worth of uh, assets to throw at one NFT. Uh, they're looking at other opportunities. And so they're going to come in and they're going to say, oh, D-Gods, that's nice. That'd be somewhere nice to uh, join one day. But you know what? I can't really achieve it right now. And they're going to look elsewhere and they're going to build up relationships and they're going to support projects. And they're hopefully going to make money off of uh, other areas. And by the time they have enough to purchase a D-God, chances are they may not even need or want to join that again. Their perspectives may have changed. Their, uh, what they are looking for may have changed. And so I think long-term, as we have people coming back into the space, once we do start hitting more of a, a bull market, those people are going to uh, go to wherever they feel 
um, that they can have the most impact, somewhere they feel welcome, somewhere that they feel connected to. And by instead of offering a token-gated culture or community where you have to spend a certain amount, by removing an economic factor from it almost entirely and just offering people a culture that they can meet people, a community that they can hang out with, that they can uh, network with, that they can build with. Uh, I think you're going to create a much more scalable community that then will be able to uh, grow and support each other much more than a group like D-Gods, which is going to just slowly probably trend to less and less people. Um, so I think it's a, just a very misguided view to think that just because businesses can work in here, that that should be the focus. And that's why you see a lot of what I'm trying to do removes economic motivators from it entirely. Uh, and I'm more looking at how can we just grow a group, a system, a culture, a community without putting these restrictions necessarily in place. How much do you think this, I don't know how, how smart of a question this is, honestly, but how much do you think the way Frank is operating, what he's doing and what other companies are operating, what they're doing is related to what's happening in real life and what we see in like typical startups, typical companies, these things? Well, I think it just goes back to their success measures. What is the success measure of a business? It's creating revenue. Now, it doesn't look at necessarily where that revenue is coming from, um, how it's generated. It's just making sure are your numbers going up? Um, so I think it's rooted a lot in those traditional models, but I don't think that's why people are necessarily always coming to the space. If people came here for a job, sure. But, you know, personally, I've had a career. Uh, I just recently quit my job uh, about a month and a half ago. Um, I was here for a lot of other reasons than just money. Sure, money would be nice to uh, to make, but... I really wanted to, I saw something unique and I just wanted to understand what is going on. And that's why if you followed any of what I've done over the past year and a half, a lot of what I've done is just been jumping from community to community to community. And a lot of it's just trying to implement how do we, how do we work as these groups we call DAOs and what even is a DAO because everyone has a different terminology for it. What are the issues that we're running into? What is different what can we do differently and i'm not asking what is necessarily the outcome from that i'm more looking at what can we do and then see if we can do it right then look what is the outcome that comes from that instead of trying to predict it because i don't think any of this is any of this ecosystem is something that we could predict because we've never had a ecosystem like this before we've never been able to collaboratively work with other people in a decentralized model. Um, and what can come of that is, I mean, honestly, anyone that says that they know um, is quite honestly bullshitting you because this isn't like the traditional world. And this is a lot of why I go after people that call themselves advisors or like tokenomics guy, because I see a lot of that as predatory. Anyone telling you that they know what's going on or they know what you need to do um, is quite honestly clueless or just trying to grift you. Yeah, 100%. I think there's a lot of this, a lot of people who tell you that they're experts in this industry is like 10 years old, max.
So it's always fun to see. Well, and it's funny because it's like the meta changes so constantly. And I was having a conversation uh, recently with a founder um, where they were, they have a new uh, project that's coming out and they needed, they wanted to figure out how to best distribute whitelists. The meta before was, you know, give it to DAOs and everything. And those DAOs would, uh, would uh, allocate it however they saw fit. And that tended to work, but now you're not seeing that model really working. Uh, you're seeing a lot of people exploit it. You're seeing, you're not really, you're getting a lot more people just in it for the flip when really we got to look at fundamentally, what are we trying to do by handing out pre-sale whitelist, things like that. And really, if you're looking at the intent of, we need to grow a solid foundation of a project is giving it to monkey Dower Boogles or where they're the people coming to them for whitelist are doing it purely out of financial motivation. Are those really the people you want to be handing out your tokens to? And after having a long conversation, I, I, they decided to go a different route uh, where instead of going to communities, going to individuals that have respect and reputation, maybe not in the broad ecosystem, but within very specialized niches. And by giving whitelists to those individuals and having those individuals act almost as advocates for the project without any additional compensation or anything, um, then they're able to, uh, I think, impart their reputation behind the project. And by giving it out by who they, who they determine they want to give it to, I think you're allowing uh, individuals to that have a stake in, the, in uh, those projects and wants to see it succeed they're able to use their discretion and determine who they think might be best or who they think would fit that project instead of trying to have a very clear-cut, defined criteria of you must do X, Y, and Z. Um, let people just empower and trust the people that know the space, that understand your project, and uh, know how to see people that would be more interested or aligned with the project. Doesn't that bear a certain risk of centralizing it to a couple people? Because if you look at the people who might have like a good reputation and who, for example, you personally believe are like good people in the space, good actors, I guess there's a fairly limited amount and there could be a risk of it just kind of each time piling onto these same people and then progressively having bad repercussions, no? I think uh, giving it to uh, any of these cur the commu main communities is having even worse of that effect. Um, especially when you have people really solidified in those community uh, ecosystems. Um, however, I think what you're doing is you're adding almost a level of chaos and variability to it. Um, it's not going to work perfectly. There are going to be issues and pitfalls. People are going to make mistakes, but I think that's a feature, not a, a drawback because there, even with your best assessment, you may not know how to properly identify the right pe the people that are going to really support a project. Sometimes people aren't even going to know until they get involved. Um, so I think it more goes back to um, allowing a almost more entropy in how it's being given out, but you're creating almost a threshold that someone is at least saying this person is, they don't think the intention is, is that they're just doing this to flip it or to make money or things like that. Um, and I think if you do it through enough people and what you do, it's almost, I, I actually allude almost to uh, it being like uh, uh, the drug trade where you may have one person that has, let's say 50 whitelists 
they may give 20 to one person, 25 to another, and then give out five individually. Now that person who got 25 may be giving out 15 to one person and 10 out uh, individually to different people. And what you're almost doing is creating this chain or this network that can create downstream impact where those that actually are in, as part of that chain, if that project does well, then their reputation is going to get boosted as well because they were able to provide something of value to a broader group. So I think by if you had communities, you almost create a terminal endpoint because most communities are, not give, are just giving out the uh, whitelist to a broad group. But by allowing uh, individuals that are reputable uh, to have discretion in how they hand it out, you can almost create a broader network uh, where there's a different incentive model, where people are giving it out not to make money off of the flip, but to uh, gain the reputational gain from giving someone an opportunity that they might not have had before. And if you can do that consistently, if you're able to help projects, if you're able to create that constant stream of, uh, of whitelists to projects that have high reputations and that do do well long-term, then you're going to build your own reputation. Yeah, in an ideal situation, that could work really well, actually. Like, especially, you need a certain amount of connections and to be able to reach out to the right people to actually, like, distribute it. But if you had the pro a project that actually like catches the eye and could potentially work, that would definitely be an interesting manner of distribution. But and, reaching ten thousand people well, might be I hard. I say reaching ten thousand again. Whitelist isn't necessarily always that large, um, but also it's you're able to then have the discretion to not hand it out to certain actors that you know may be selling them, or you may be able to uh, keep a closer eye on monitor how people have been hand uh, handing them out. Uh, and I think it almost becomes a trial and error type system where you can really see people's true colors based off of what they do long term. Um, and I think people will lose reputation if they are uh, using it for personal gain. Yeah, of course. Um, I wanted to come back to something you were saying before. You were talking a lot about the economic, economic incentives and kind of taking them out of play. And I think obviously at the moment, a lot of people are here for those economic incentives. And I wonder like how you would like the space to currently evolve. Do you want those economic incentives, like even to have people not be here for the money anymore? Or do you think the money still has its place, but it should be reached in a different manner? I, a lot of things that I've seen, this is a scaling economy. And from what I've recognized is when you're part of a scaling economy and you're uh, helping build that system, not trying to just extract value from it, but actually just trying to help build whatever this is, be a community, be a DeFi platforms, be it whatever. If you're being a player and helping build that, really the economic benefits tend to come back in some way, shape, and form. It may not always be directly that you're going to get sold back, but I, it goes back to, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later. It goes back to like burning uh, tokens and things. Back when I joined COPE, this was probably early 2021. They had a burn bot that was in, uh, that they had enabled a tip bot that also allowed you to burn COPE. And one of the reasons why I started burning stuff is I, when I burned a significant amount of cope in the Discord, I instantly got viewed 
with a high social status. Everyone was calling me a Chad. And what it got me was access to uh, different private groups that I never would have had the opportunity to uh to achieve before. And just by growing a reputation, getting known and helping people that I met through those channels, I was then presented with a ton of new opportunities that I never would have received before. So, you know, that may have a economic gain because some of those opportunities may have made me additional money, but a lot of those might not have. It may have just been uh, opportunities to meet certain people or network with other people, which directly didn't give me financial gain. But long term, when I needed, let's say I was supporting a project and I needed someone's input on something, I had a wider network that I could go uh, tap into, talk to, and thus provide more value back to others. So I think we need a more holistic view of what is valuable in this ecosystem. Yes, there are economic things that are valuable, but if you're taking a more holistic approach, even in a bear market where there's no money going around, you still have value, you can still contribute, you can still be growing. It's just your wallet might not be growing as quickly. Okay, fair enough. And how do... Because that's a, I, I think that's a very individual approach to it. How do then founders and project creators go about that? How do like are they going to be working for that economic incentive? Because you need to have a balance between managing a runway short term and a longer term approach to that, right? So I think it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to build a community based project, I don't think you have uh, um, much need to have a project. Quite honestly, I really see there being two groupings in general. Um, one is actual legitimate businesses, which would be producing DeFi protocols like Honey, like Fract, groups that are actually building something where they, they need the autonomy to hire people, uh, fire people. Um, they need that same logical framework to actually build a technical system. Um, I think this is one of the issues MonkeyDAO runs into is they're trying to operate like a business when they token gate their uh, their business. What they're doing is they're limiting who they can have in certain roles based on if they're a member, if they're not. They're trying to uh, create a business model where 99% of your uh, community isn't actually doing any additional work, but they are wanting to take value out of the system. They want to gain something from it. Um, so I think it goes back to the t what are you trying to establish and set up? If you're uh, establishing these DeFi protocols and you're trying to build out those systems, I think it's very important to have that focus. But I also think that the revenue then, it comes from fees generated externally from people using the tools. Uh, I think DGods does kind of the opposite, where they're trying to extract the value from their direct community and they're extracting value internally. I see that more as exploitative because what you're doing is you're creating a, uh, you're drawing people in for something of potential value and then you're uh, gaining value off of them. Even if it's just royalties, anyone buying in or selling, you're, you're extracting value from those uh, players, those individuals versus DeFi protocols Anyone can use a lending platform. And, you know, it comes back to not the hype of joining a project or a floor price increase. It goes back to the actual utility provided by the platform itself. So I think if you are building one of those tools, those systems, yes, absolutely, you should be 
profit focused, revenue focused. Um, and I think your community goes back to being a extension of operations more so than a actual um, social community. You're more there because most marketing done in Web3 is word of mouth. You don't see direct to consumer or one way uh, advertising really being effective. Uh, but what you do see is a lot of alpha sharing. You see a lot of people uh, um, connecting and discussing uh, different opportunities and things that they see. And this is, I think, where the community, people who have revenue share uh, as part of the, those communities, they can play an active role in helping grow and build those projects. Um, now we take the flip side where you have more social groups. And I think that goes back to non-economic uh, gains really. It's more about networking. It's more about building a culture. It's more about uh, having uh, a aligned interest and people to support you and for you to support to help out uh, more so than trying to generate fees and revenue off each other. Okay. So I guess the future of the space would obviously be a mix of both things, but a lot of these projects at the end of the day are like created by a founder and a team. So how do you go from someone creating their collection of NFTs to building a community that is no longer focused on generating revenue for that team who put in the effort of that, but you continue having a community that functions and continues running? Because I, I don't think we see that much well, except for maybe monkey down. Exactly. And I think this is because we're going from two different uh, focuses. So monkey Dow is very unique because it was the first project where a community was there first and they established structure and they tried to build something from that. Almost every other project is establishing what they call a DAO, a project, and they're trying to lure people in and then trying to keep people there. The issue is, is you're trying to artificially create a society, create a culture that, and I think that's the majority reason why a lot of these projects tend to be hyped and then they tend to kind of fizzle out and fade because people are not, that that community was almost artificial. It was almost, you had to incentivize and pull people in. And if you have to draw someone in, this is the same reason why I'm against uh, trying to onboard people not in crypto currently, is if you have to pay to get someone's interest and attention, you're going to have to be funding uh, to retain that interest and attention long term. Now, if someone's coming together for some other reason, like you see in Monkey Dow, there was a group of people that came together that wanted to start something and a culture kind of formed behind that. And what you started to see is people wanting to be part of that culture. Monkey Dow has never made good revenue. No one's joining there to say, hey, I want to gain additional revenue. And if you are, you need to look into what they've actually, uh, how much they've actually generated because it, it, that's not the intent. That's not the focus. And so I think what we need to do, and this is one of the pushes I was, uh, when I was uh, trying to initially get elected through the Monkey Dow board, is we need to stop trying to artificially create what we want people to do. Instead, what we should do is look at the ecosystem and see where are people congregating? What are people aligning behind? What cultures are naturally kind of forming? And then how can we empower and how can we build that up if we're not necessarily focused on exploiting that group for our own personal gain? I think this goes back to like the Bonquito Dow. You know, they, with the uh, Bonquito Dow, do right now doing pretty well. They're trying to formalize. 
There is zero financial gain back to the Bandito Dow. We don't have control over them. We only thing we have is social influence because they look up to us, but that can change at a moment's notice. A lot of people would have anxiety about allowing some another group to kind of build on your culture without any control or oversight because you don't know what they're going to do. There could be bad actors in there. Um, and so I think it's very difficult to, for people to even move over to this type of model because the whole focus like you're highlighting is how can I get something out of this group? How can I control it? How can I maintain that oversight? And I think we're looking at it completely differently. I think what we need to look at more is like what the bandies, we want that culture to grow. And when that culture does grow, something new really happens. And this is what we're working through a bit more now is my focus from the beginning uh, in Web3 is I wanted to understand governance, not technical governance of proposals, but more how do you achieve what you want to achieve in this ecosystem? And culture is going to play a very key role because one of the big things we recognized was missing from most uh, communities and projects is they did not have aligned visions, values, goals. And uh, I've been working with Ravi Monkey and several others uh, on trying to help give templates and formats and making people understand the value of these strategic planning documents. Now, what I've realized is if we remove this structure of limiting that to a token-gated uh, uh, community, and rather, we try to build a culture. What happens is, is that culture establishes a certain level of social norms, values, uh, and objectives that they're willingly choosing to build on their own. Now, when we need, let's say there is a governance proposal uh, that's going on on some DeFi platform, and let's say that there is a specific benefit we want to gain from it or we want to influence it, through that culture, if you can align those groups to be aware and to support that project, you don't have to dictate to them what uh, re the response to any specific proposal should be, because all of those groups are going to be driven by their core values. And those core values are going to get you probably 80 to 90% of the time aligned views on uh, the outcome of any specific proposal. And so if you can build a culture and you can build a group of people just behind that culture and that ideology. And if you can in some way get them to all look at the same DeFi platforms or governance systems or whatever it is you're trying to look at, and you can get them to just operate as they choose to autonomously, um, I think you can create a cohesive group in the ecosystem trying to influence and build uh, in a very specific direction. Is that direction good? Is that bad? I mean, I think that's all subjective. Does this tie into what you're doing with ABC Ventures at all, or two different really two different things? So I'm not as active in ABC Ventures. So I actually sold the majority of my ABC back when they were about 180 to 200. Um, well played. Hades is. I'm more focused on Hades and what HGE is doing. I think. The, the ABC focus right now or the community focus is, um, I, I don't think it's a very effective. And what I'm generally seeing is you can only have decentralized systems and groups. Really, it comes from a centralized uh, place initially. And I don't think most of the ecosystem is mature enough to operate as a decentralized community and actually be effective. Um, and I think a lot of that's because the culture is not necessarily aligned. And ABC Ventures, there's still a lot of DGEN focused 
uh, culture. Uh, there was a lot of discussions like with shit coins and things like that. Uh, whereas a lot of the more mature individuals that I've worked with that are part of ABC Ventures, they're really looking at how they can help influence and uh, mature that group to understand uh, what their priorities and focus, where they should be looking at to be an effective operating group. Um, but really what it comes down to with ABC, it, it comes down to HGE. It's a centralized approach. He is able to pretty much uh, fund and coordinate a very large ecosystem because of the funds and assets that he has. Um, and so I have a very strong focus on Hades because I see HGE as one of the only people in the space with that level of assets, but also reputation. He can influence a very large group of people. Um, and I think from that, he has the ability to establish certain cultures that will then turn into more of these decentralized, collaborative, uh, community-driven activities. But I think we're still so early in that that it's, it's not there yet. Yeah, I d decentralized like DAOs are definitely hard to operate. It's hard to bring a lot of people together without... A, like a leading figure or anything. And I think you definitely see the necessity of a leading figure, especially in the crypto space. If you saw it in DeFi with like Daniela Sistegali, who even did his own DAOs, like Wonderland DAO, that was a mess as well. Because even in a system where you had a token and you could vote and you did have governance, you still ended up having a couple key figures that would lead those votes, whether it was whales or just people that were influential on Twitter and on the forums. Well, so, and I think this goes down to a key point that I'm really looking at right now. It's... It doesn't matter in Web3 if you're a whale or if you're just a collaborative group of people that are aligned and have the equivalent amount of assets as a whale. If you can operate as a socially cohesive group and deploy the same amount of assets as any one individual whale is, you can have the exact same impact on the ecosystem. It, and it really comes down to as long as people all work together and they al allocate the resources all in a very strategic manner, just like one person would, you're going to have the same outcome and the same result. And so I'm looking more, and this is actually, I've been helping some of the guys that are forming the Bonkito or uh, the uh, Solana Bonk business now, the Bonk now, or I forget what they're calling it specifically. Um, but instead of taking an approach where you have a board and then they kind of oversee the entire group, I don't think those models are scalable. Instead, what I see at the governance layer that would work more effectively is having multiple subgroups or subcommunities. I hate saying subdows because it, it acts like there's a trait base or some very specific gated way of forming those groups. But if you like how Monkey Dow just kind of came out of nothing and they formed a structure around it, if you can have different groups, and I see this like in Monkey DAO, you have Monkey Gaming, you have DGen Mints, you've got the Bandito DAO, you've got the Howdy DAO, you've got these different groups that all kind of work together. They all have their own individual cultures. Now, instead of having a board of elected officials that are out from the board, what if you have these units operating at the governance layer, where you have, let's use an example with Monkey DAO, you have DGen Mints. Um, the uh, Monkey Gaming, Bandito Dao, Howdy Dao. Let's assume that those are the main groups. And let's say each of them uh, elect a, one or two officials from their group. Uh, and that is what ends up being your board. Now what you have is a model where you have multiple different cultures all trying to kind of grow in the space and work together as one cohesive unit. But 
every board member is tied back to a very specific culture and very specific group. I think one of the big issues that you have is when you have a board, people think it's the shadowy cabal. And because they have to keep something secretive, everyone likes to fill in the blanks of what's going on. And I think a lot of that, uh, the issues that cause people to uh, have concerns or issues with the, the board is because they don't have an established relationship or level of trust with them. And so they don't identify those people as working in their best interest. Now, if you create a model where people are working through these sub-communities and subgroups, they're going to only be working through there or collaborating there if they really socially identify there. And if the, uh, if the individuals from those groups are their representatives at the broader uh, governance level, the top-level governance level, now you've always got that constant tie of someone that it, you identify with socially that you feel is identifying as part of self uh, at that level, and they're your uh, direct oversight or insight into what's going on. It's someone that you always trust. So I think it, we are going to slowly move to a model where governance is not at the governance layers. It's not going to be individuals. Rather, they're going to be these socially cohesive groups of people that are going to uh, operate at those levels. And what you then do is actually fractionalize the operations to make it uh, not any more or make it less cumbersome. Because one of the big issues, it's like proposals, any type of governance system. How do you get proposals? How do you limit proposals? What is allowed to be submitted and what's not? Because um, one easy way to uh, fuck over any proposal system is just inundate it with proposals, uh, bog down the work as much as you can. When you're working as individuals, you can do that, I think, very easily. But when you're working through these different groups, each group will be able to establish their own process and system for how to submit a proposal, how to review a proposal. Um, and you may have multiple different uh, processes based on each of the different groups having their own. And I think if you have a more degen group, you're probably not going to have as stringent of requirements of how our proposal needs to get evaluated or reviewed. However, if you have a group that is a bit more mature, that uh, doesn't want any proposals coming through that make them look bad, you, they may have a bit more stringent requirements on how it goes through. And I think what you create then is almost a system of self-policing because anyone operating through those subgroups are going to be a representative of the overall group. And so anyone that, let's say, submits a proposal that is bullshit, um, you know, that's going to hurt everyone there. And I think they're going to be self-policing and they're going to set up their own uh, checks and balances to minimize those impacts. And so what you've almost done by doing that is the government, the actual people that are facilitating the proposal system don't even have to worry about the operations of getting proposals uh, up to there to be voted on. The groups are going to do it on their own. They just have to make sure that they're facilitating those votes. And so you're almost fractionalizing out the operations and giving it to the different, uh, the different parts. And so you're decreasing then the operational needs at the top, because I think one of the big issues with any board is they really, people think they're leadership, but quite honestly, they tend to be operations. They're the ones doing all the work. And it's really lopsided from where you see leadership in the traditional world, where you've got everyone that's not doing the work, everyone that's just part of the community, judging them based on that. Um, and so I think it's a more aligned model. And I think you minimize the centralization risks then, because only those that the groups, individual groups agree with or align with would ever even be able to be a representative 
to the broader at the broader governance level. And so I see this not just in these communities, but I see this is what I was trying to do with Marinade uh, back several months ago, uh, wherein Lafinity tried to come in and uh, establish a presence in Marinade. Uh, I was trying to highlight this type of model where instead of having individuals really pushing most of the governance for their own special interest, if we could establish a model where you had multiple different communities operating through uh, at that governance layer, you're going to create something, I believe, more sustainable and scalable uh, for that reason. Okay. I'm curious because in this sense, you have a bunch of different communities that come together. And each of these are regulated by kind of the individuals that are part of each community. How do you, like personally, I, f I almost kind of feel like it's a bit of an idealized view because you might have individuals that are in both communities, individuals that become a bit too influential because I feel like a lot of people like banding together around one person. And the obvious example here is like Frank, that everyone comes together around and a bunch of people have started idolizing is like a cult of personality almost. And in a place where you have such a community-based level without that much maybe regulation, it becomes really hard to avoid either a prominent figure from coming up and being that main person or just simply having in like a completely different field, different entities of the entire entity. For example, back to MonkeyDAO, having, for example, Monkey Gaming and Mandita DAO completely disagree on a direction. Yeah, I think those are some of the issues that need to get looked at and worked through. But I think that thinking that some a cult of personality is going to be absolute, I think that really requires an echo chamber and where their people are isolated really to just that one group. Uh, what I've really seen is really almost a set of almost social checks and balances where people don't like any one person uh, exploiting a broader group. And by being a part of multiple communities, you're getting different perspectives. You're working with different networks of people. And I've operated in some ways in one group where then I have a different group going, hey, guy, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I really don't think that's the way to be going and you're really pissing me off. And guess what? I take a step back because there's certain people that I highly respect and I respect their opinion of me. And I want to make sure that we have a strong collaborative relationship long term. And by doing, by operating in a certain way that might hurt those individuals by operating through one group, uh, but having open communications with others, it's reined a lot of that in. So I think a lot of this is still because we have people like with Frank and D-Gods, people really put their uh, full identity behind just one project. But I think when people start expanding and you can take a look at like my profile, I've got multiple different projects listed in my bio. And all of those are projects I really identify with and I want all of those to succeed and do well. And I would not actually sacrifice one over the other just to get a leg up now. Other projects that I might have less interest in, that might always be a possibility. Um, but I think it's about forming strong relationships and strong uh, reputations across multiple uh, of the groups is going to keep almost that in balance for the most part. Um, not say, again, it is idealistic, fully agree. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of nuanced me uh, mechanics in Web3 like social contracts that never worked previously, but I see a very strong use case for. And I see it as 
um, having a lot more power than a legal enforcement system could ever have. Yeah, I think obviously if it's idealistic, these things always sound good. What always, what really interests me is how these things get implemented and where we'll actually see the first signs of it working well and how those like growing pains are going to, are we going to get over them? Are we going to stumble on them? How that's going to work? Well, I think it goes back. So I'm currently, uh, so I have a pretty large stable, actually the top stable in photo finish live currently. And Wolof is the guy that's uh, running that entire stable. He came, he was a champion in the uh, prior game that third time had made. Um, and uh, I linked up with him and we kind of just connected and built a relationship over time where the point that I've given him every horse that I have, he has hundreds of thousand dollars worth of uh, horses that I fully trust him with. We don't have a single legal contract in place. What I have done with him, though, is I've made it very clear that, you know, what, understanding what he wants, he wants to build that system, he wants to grow it. Um, and I don't have the ability to do that. I don't think I have any... I'm not going to add value to telling him how to run that horse stable. But what I do have is assets that he can use and he can leverage. So I built a strong relationship with him. And also I gave him a, uh, a bandito because we had formed such a good relationship. I wanted him to feel as part of the banditos. He was representing us as the stable master or the uh, stable manager. He was running that show. And so we have an informal agreement of 50% split on everything. Uh, he is a bandito. And anytime if he has to build out operations, I was very clear to him that, you know, uh, that's going to come out of my cut. He's the one that's doing all of the work. So we need to just keep a mutually aligned interest. I want him to scale. I want him to grow. I don't want him to view, be viewed as I'm taking advantage of him in any way. He's, I can't do anything without him, quite honestly. And he holds all the assets. If he doesn't like what I'm doing, he doesn't have to pay any of the revenue back to me. He, he holds all the horses. There's no legal repercussions I could really even do to stop that. And because I put that trust in and because we've built that relationship and I try to uh, be very transparent and true to my word, he doesn't have any uh, concern about me trying to fuck him over. Or, or I don't have any concern of him trying to fuck me because we have a mutually aligned interest and incentives. I think this is polar opposite of what you see like with big brain ventures where he hires employees. At the end of the day, they are his employees and it's very clear that that's their uh, role. It's his assets that they're using. Um, I think that those type of models are models that are going to make good stable managers want to step out and create their own stables because they want to build something for themselves. Um, you know, I don't view Wolof as a employee. He is a partner. He is doing one part of this operations that I can't do. And I'm doing one part that he can't do. And as long as we retain that, uh, beneficial, uh, the aligned incentives, there's no reason for one of us to fuck each other over because even if we chose to, it would destroy our reputations more broadly. And it would be so much more difficult for us to even be able to, uh, work in uh, either him grow in photo finish with partnerships or me take on other people as partnerships. I think through having these mutually aligned incentive models, you can create social contracts that are going to be uh, enforceable and people are going to stick to. And I think you can recreate very similarly what so big brains trying to do through legal structures. I think you can establish through social structures uh, and reputation.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think we had already spoken about this in the sense of like having people come together to fund new incentives and to boost new projects into existence, but exactly with those mutually assigned, assigned like aligned incentives, which is really cool. I think especially with like that relationship with Wolf, it's also a mutually aligned incentive, but in a certain extent also mutually aligned destruction kind yeah. of. Because if you screw him, well, you guys, it'll screw you and vice versa, right? There's, yeah, there's absolutely no good reason for either of us to go back on any of our word. And, you know, quite honestly, if anything was to happen, the only reason I could see that happening is some external issue from our personal lives. And you know what? That's another reason why I try to push a supportive system where we're all kind of working, collaborating together. And by understanding, you know, people are going to have personal issues. And instead of holding people accountable for performance metrics and instead being more supportive and understanding of, you know, if something didn't work or something broke down, understanding why and understanding how you can help uh, support them and build it up so it doesn't happen in the future. If you can create an environment where people are more open and understanding, you know, this isn't a business where people and shit happens, then instead of people trying to do things, let's say, skim money off the top behind the back, people will come to you. I've given out a number of loans to individuals that with 0% interest on any of it, simply because I want to help them out and I have the assets to do it. Sure, I miss out on a few soul and interest for a couple weeks, but ultimately I'm helping someone I know is going to be a positive impact in the space. And building that relationship is worth so much more than a couple soul I could get from interest. Yeah, of course. So with, like with all that being said, there's one question that I, I definitely wanted to like touch on. It's it seems like you have all of these intentions for Web3 and this vision that some people may or may not align with, but is there a reason for which you like put all this energy into Web3? Because you don't necessarily have economic incentives for it. You don't have a project that you're running. What is like the core belief that pushes you to like do everything you've been doing? Good question. I think it comes down to, I see a basically a open playing field, a open sandbox. I just see a lot of unique mechanisms or me uh, mechanics and a lot of different things that people aren't necessarily leveraging or using. Um, ultimately, my goal is, is I'd like to have strong influence in building this ecosystem simply because I, I believe I have all I know is I have strong interest in building it right and supportively that you know, I don't see that being done by a lot of other people. I'd like to have a positive impact in the space. And I think through expanding influence and figuring out how to grow that influence and get people to align in a coordinated manner, we can build a system that is not at risk of these private entities creating the structure that boxes us in to get economic gain off of us. Um, I see a lot of people, especially because a lot of these groups started, it was during COVID. People didn't have the ability to socialize as easily uh, because they were stuck at home and it pushed them to try to socialize online. I see this more as we're building a new society um, and a new way of operating that if we can build that right, we can create a very a system that's going to support and help a lot of people out. I'd love to be part of that. Um, I'd love to design that. I would love to figure those things out and help advance that type of mindset, that type of view. 
um, when I'm seeing just most people looking at it of how can I generate money off of this? So I, I think it just comes down to personal interest in doing something I think others aren't or can't and that desire to have broad influence. I see that as better than uh, better gain than any economic gain. I can make money elsewhere. I had a good career in pharma. I can always go back to. Um, it's not been about the money for that reason. I was going to ask. Um, you've I, you've spoken quite a bit about you being in pharma on like Twitter. Not that much, but like you've mentioned it. Do you think there's things that you've learned in real life from your like past career, like from your career? that you maybe want to like fix maybe things that you've seen there and you say this is fucked up i don't want this shit to happen in web 3 because it's like this new paradigm or are there things that you've seen in web 2 that you're trying to bring to web 3 because it's not there like the parallels or the contrast that you've seen between the two yeah so what really what pushed me away from pharma is there's so much politics anyone that's worked in a large global uh organization especially that's high revenue and highly regulated um, there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of it's a lot of governance systems that really make it difficult to uh, really impact change very easily. It's like slamming your head against the wall for months and months and months and months, and you get a little tick uphill. Basically, um, I see Web three as having the ability to create a strong impact and influence without all of that bullshit. Quite honestly. And what I've realized is I've worked in an area um, that I never had authority over the systems I needed to change. I always had to work with other groups and I had to get them to understand and implement changes that I needed for my system to work when they own the system or process. And so what I learned is the majority of the way I've operated throughout my career has been through social influence. It was about building relationships with people so that they trusted and understood where I was coming from and that I was transparent with it and understood why I needed them to do something that maybe they didn't want to do because it added more work or created more issues down uh, the road or it made things more complicated, but it was something that was required. Um, so I realized that a lot of the work I've done has been that social influence, and that's where I realized in Web3, quite honestly, any, infra any logical infrastructure governance system you can set up can be easily dismantled just through social influence. And I tried to highlight that very clearly back in uh, the m recent MonkeyDAO elections, that I was 100% clear that I was not going to follow the recent proposal that they had passed that was to, cr to operate like a business. Um, and I told them that I was going to focus on trying to build sub communities and social groups and try to empower and grow those in direct contrast with what they expected the, uh, the people that were running to uh, do. Well, that created a lot of issues because all of a sudden there was a lot of people saying, hey, you can't do that. We just passed the proposal. And I told them, well, um, if I get voted in, then that means your proposal was null and void, quite honestly. Any type of structure you put in place is not enforceable because we don't have legal systems to enforce it. The only systems we have that can enforce anything in Web3 are social systems. And if you can, and social influence and social perspective changes over time. So even if you have a proposal everyone agrees with today, tomorrow they might not. And people don't like creating systems that can change like that, that are that flexible because 
there's a lot of anxiety when they don't know what to expect, especially if you don't have a good pulse on the community and understand where the community is coming from. That creates, I think, a lot of uh, concerns and issues. So what I've realized is, honestly, the only thing that has power in this system is that social influence. And that's why I've tried to build a reputation beh behind transparency, honesty, integrity, and trying to be very forthright with my intentions and what I'm trying to do. Um, because ultimately, I don't think anyone can stop that if people are aligned behind someone. And any system you put into place, any governance system, any votes you have are going to just get null and void if people choose not to operate within it. The only time that that doesn't apply is when your system is fully configured by smart contracts. But the moment, and that's not how most of our DAOs are, in the moment you add a human element where a human has to operate within there, then you add in these, uh, these elements of social governance. And it goes back to people thinking like technical governance being uh, proposals in that, that the whole premise is, is whoever has the most votes can achieve whatever the outcome they need is. When quite honestly, it doesn't necessarily matter how many tokens I have. If I can push out and ostracize individuals that are opposing me in a view, if I can make their life a living hell and make them dump their tokens, if I can get a large number of other aligned people to buy into a project and uh, align behind uh, the same view as I have, it has the exact same outcome as if I had enough capital to buy uh, enough votes to basically win that outcome. And I think people don't necessarily recognize or realize the power that that social influence and that social governance element has in any system that we're operating in Web3 with. So you have the chance to create all this change, mostly through social influence. Is there a reason that, like, why do it in Web, obviously do it in Web3 because that's where you have the most change, but what are you trying to, what's the purpose behind that even? Because you're trying to change Web3, but is there like a wider purpose than just change Web3? Web3 doesn't affect that many people all in all for the current stage. Are you going to try to like make it be, reach more people? Uh, Should it just be its closed ecosystem? Like I have, okay, I only think one step ahead usually. So my whole goal is I want to move it in the right direction, but this is like, saying that I want to travel to uh, uh, to Germany and I've never been there. I don't have the internet. And then I'm being asked, what do you plan to do when you get there? How do you answer that question when you have no fucking clue what there even is? All I know is, is I want to get there. And when I get there, I'll have the options available and I'll figure it out. Um, but I know that having that influence and impact is going to be beneficial uh, to get to that end state or get to that model. And we'll figure it out as we go. I think too many people come in with preconceived views of what they think should happen, that they miss what is actually happening and what actual opportunities and options are available to them. I think it's like social contracts are what I'm building everything around. And most people come into the space going, yeah, social contracts are completely, uh, you can't build a system around them. And so they ignore it. I think that's the exact perspective that's holding us back. So I think the first thing I'm trying to do is show that we can build these systems different ways. And then I just want to empower people to figure out what they want to do from there. I'm not someone that runs a project. I'm not someone that's consistent. You'll see me go offline for days at a time. 
Um, I'm not someone that is always going to be responsive. And I know that about myself. It's why I've never set up a, never set up my own project or joined any project or tied any project directly to me specifically, because I can go off the rails. I can do some crazy stuff. I can go ghost for a while. Um, but I know there's a lot of people in the space that can build these groups, build these systems, build these projects. But the problem is, is a lot of them, I don't think understand all of the utilities in front of them that they can use. So I think my main goal is show people there's a different way of doing this, then giving those people the tools and resources they need to achieve what they're trying to with these new models uh, understood. Yeah, that makes sense. But to go back to like the comparison of like going to Germany and you don't know what, if you don't know there, you don't know what to do there. You might still have a goal. Like you go to Germany, maybe to have fun, maybe to visit a new culture. Cause you know, there's something different there. You maybe want to explore it. Maybe you have an intention. Yeah. Do you have like an intention there? Minimize the exploitation of individuals for economic gain. I think that's what it comes down to is I want people to be able to have a system that they are free to operate within without the, uh, without all of these layers of cultural gating that we kind of see in our current system. Um, I see so many people limited in opportunities, even if they have the capabilities to do well, um, simply because they don't act a certain way. They don't have the same culture as a, a different person. Um, I see so many different layers. Like this, I mean, a great example is just like by going to some uh, uh, businesses don't even hire you unless you go to a certain college. Now, going to a college doesn't mean a damn thing of your capabilities. Um, however, it is a way to ensure only certain people uh, have that opportunity available to them. So I see the ability for us to create a system where anyone with the capabilities has the opportunity put in front of them um, or the ability to actually obtain it. Um, it may not be perfect. There's still going to be gating. There's always gating in every social system. But I think there's a system that we can minimize that instead of this the traditional model, which is so layered with different uh, gating mechanisms, uh, different governance systems, uh, both social and legal and economic, uh, cultural, just so many different elements. I see almost like a new beginning that people can, we can rebuild from the ground up instead of trying to change a monolith system that already exists. Have you ever thought that you could be wrong in the way that you're like executing these things in the, like the direction you're going, maybe not the final objective, but thought that what you, the way you've been going about it is wrong, or at least have you ever redirected what you've been doing since you've started working on this? I think it's more about the impact you have. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong because even when you're wrong, you cause a specific impact in the space. Um, I pissed a lot of people off. That has impact. Um, I've made decisions that hurt others. But that has impact. Um, and those impacts actually change how the trajectory of everything goes. So I don't think that there, I think a part of it is learning as you go. And I always like to use the analogy that this is like Squid Games, the glass bridge, where innovation only happens if someone takes the next step forward and you don't know if there's two steps in front of you, which one's going to be the one you fall through and which one's going to support you. But you don't have a choice. Someone has to take that step. So you know what? People are going to make mistakes. People are going to be wrong. 
But it's about that impact, how you support each other and how you learn and build from that, that I think is how we keep each other accountable and how we keep this entire system going. So I've been wrong before. I'll keep being wrong again. Um, however, I think that that is really the only way to take those steps forward. If I was afraid of being wrong, I wouldn't take any of those steps forward and I wouldn't be moving closer to that objective regardless. So I think uh, it's, it's all up in the air. We'll see, we'll see how things go, but it's all about conviction and knowing when you need to redirect versus when you need to keep pushing forward. Yeah. Are there any impacts that you've like that really that have a ripple effect in the ecosystem that you've either regretted and learned a lot from or that have been like like the complete opposite end of the spectrum where it had a really positive influence that you didn't expect and that you learned from that as well so i've trusted a lot of people and given them loans or given them assets um at as a, because i recognized they were good players in the space and they needed the support and help um and i've seen those people grow uh, and I think that's had a po very positive impact because I don't know if necessarily they would have been able to achieve that had they not had the resources they needed. Um, that's I take a lot of things by blind uh, faith or just uh, gut feeling on how I feel certain people are if I think they're trying uh, to build in the right direction. And that in general has worked out beneficially. Um, I mean, I've had, I think, negative impacts on people, especially uh, people that I've attacked or, uh, but I think, again, it goes back to perspective because I've realized in this space, if you try to align everyone, it's just like trying to lead a 2000 person DAO with one board as one aligned group. You're not, it's not going to work. You're not going to have people socially cohesive enough to actually uh, align together um, to work as a cohesive unit. However, what I have realized is you can create unity by dividing people. If you can divide people into groups and into ideologies in different sets of opinions and views, then what you're doing is you're basically aggregating those with generally the same social perspectives and values into one group. It's why I attack a lot of people and why I really don't care if I piss a lot of people off because the number one way to get people to rally together is to give them a common enemy to fight. And so I found that by going after some people or attacking people, there are a large number of people that support my perspective and my view and they fall behind me. There's a lot of people that disagree with me in my view and they usually support the other individual. But by creating that divide, you're creating a group of people that are aligned in common ideology. And then when you start having discussions with those groups, with people, when you're talking with a group that has that then is limited just to those that are actually listening to you because you weren't attacking them or they because they did agree uh, bef uh, with your view, then what you're doing is you're eliminating all this bullshit back and forth that you tend to see in most governance discussions where everyone has a differing opinion. What you're doing is you're really consolidating a view behind a general ideology where most people are aligned and now it comes down to the nuances of how you actually implement that you're having the discussion on. I think way too many uh, of our discussions, uh, everyone has a different view on what we need to do to move forward and no one has a fucking clue what we need to do. All we need to do is quite honestly just start doing stuff and really objectively see what works, what doesn't. Um, but we get so bogged down in the discussion because everyone thinks they know something that they don't. So if we are able to divide these groups, then I think you're able to then create more cohesive units 
discussing and operating and moving forward in the space. So even when it's a negative impact, I think it still has a positive impact in the ecosystem broadly. Yeah, of course. I mean, so you have the start of like, there are going to be people that are going to rally behind you. There are going to be people that rally behind others. And it ties in a lot to what I would call tribalism quite often in what happens here. And I think you've seen it today, even where you had a bunch of people rallying behind Foxy Dev because he's a builder. And then people rallying behind Frank because they made their bags. And I would still argue that I think you can obviously, once again, it depends on your perspective, but you can like Frank and Foxy Dev at the same time. There's no reason to like rally behind the two. And I wonder how you kind of like make these worlds coexist of someone that's for like who's going to have this very black and white view and then the person who's going to have the opposite black and white view and then the people who are in the middle who just have this like different nuance of what's going on well i think it goes back to everyone still thinking that there needs to be democracy i don't see any democratic system honestly working very well in web3 the reason being is compromise destroys good plans and uh, it takes usually very strategic and defined plans to execute something uh, large scale in Web3. You see that with most projects. You don't tend to have project teams having their community having large uh, influence in their, uh, in their uh, roadmap or perspective. They may take feedback from them, but ultimately they're going to control that. What I tend to see is I think you're going to have governance systems where people, it is tribal. And people are going to rally behind common, uh, common plans or uh, ideas they agree with, and they're going to throw their weight behind that. And you're going to see those that get the most weight behind it are going to be the ones successful. But the issue is, is you have to maintain that support for you to maintain that foothold in that specific area. Um, and that means you need to continue to deliver on what you stated that you would. Um, but also the other group that is pushing back uh, can also gain more influence and support and take over that area. Uh, so I see our governance system more as these different tribal tribes, but it's going to be a lot more fractionalized than what you see as a tribe where one person is part of one community and another is part of another. It's going to be all based on uh, the specific activity, the specific ideology, the specific issue that's being discussed. Because like you said, there are people that might support Foxy Dev and support Frank. But you know, when it comes down to very specific issues, they may support Foxy Dev in one and they may support Frank in another. And so I think we need to fractionalize out these views of you don't just support one person. You support a lot of different communities, and it depends on how much you care about any specific issue. will depend on if you give your weight behind uh, that individual or not. Um, I have a lot of opinions on things, and I support a lot of different projects, but there's only a handful of things that are really uh, I'm going to put my time to help push or promote or uh, help the team out on. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is small. I see as smaller that it's not worth my time, and so you're not going to see me throw my weight behind it or my support behind it. And I think this is what you're going to see is it's a lot less structured and it's a lot more fractionalized where people can change their views. They can support different issues at different times. Um, and that voice is just, it's going to be a question of whoever is able to make the most noise and get the most uh, agreement and alignment uh, and sustain it. 
at the end of the day, that does end up becoming a very democratic view, right? And even more so than you might see in other democracies like around the world. But it's really, it's who you put every single issue becomes separate as its own entity. It's really everyone's debating over one issue and not over one person that has a view over a multitude of issues. Exactly. And then you fight. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. And, and so it becomes... We, Super interesting. Because what you, we have to look at is we stop have to looking looking at individuals as individuals, and really it comes down to what is the aligned group doing. It's like I was talking before. There's no difference between one a whale with assets and a socially cohesive group that has a strategic plan and deploying assets just like a whale would. A Web3 entity does not have very formal boundaries. It is whatever is able to operate cohesively as a unit, be it one person, be it 10, be it 100, be it 1,000. The limitations are always going to be uh, social uh, limitations because our ability to collaborate and get along with one another is always the rate limiting factor to work as a cohesive group. And this is why I also believe we need to start as smaller subgroups in most of these DAOs, because I right now, I only think we're able to operate at groups that are between maybe 10 to 30, maybe a bit more than that. I think anytime you start expanding the group beyond that, you start getting too much, uh, you, you don't have as cohesively aligned uh, people always. And so I think if we start operating in these smaller subgroups and start operating as socially as cohesive units, like we're trying to do with the Bandito DAO, you're able then to op look as if you're a one web three entity that is operating just like an individual whale would. So a lot of talk about sub DAOs and I think the one community, the one project recently that has spoken out the most about sub DAOs and trying to get the most about sub DAOs is not calling it sub DAOs, they're calling it clubs and it's Frank. So how does that tie to it? Because well, they are, it's very similar to what you're saying. It's maybe a different intention. Well, it's funny because uh, if you listen, there's a hyperspace podcast where I go through all of this with Frank on the line. And it's mm -hmm. only after I gave him all these highlights that he said that they were looking at doing something like that. Um, <laughs> So I have my personal opinions on that. Uh, but the issue with him, he's always going to have is, again, he's socially gating or he's, uh, he's gating his communities. And I don't think he'll be able to scale it to the same level. I think in theory, um, having these groups and really empowering from that level is what we need to be doing. But I think we need to go about how we try to control and handle those groups differently. So Frank is trying to do it from a project base where he now has multiple subgroups all behind one, uh, all under one umbrella project. Now, Bandito DAO is doing the exact same thing. And then you see with the Bonquito DAO, if we can create multiple uh, subgroups all aligned behind the same Bandito culture and ideology, we're going to be doing the exact same thing, but we're going to have one cohesive culture where he's going to have multiple different cultures all kind of uh, uh, pushing against each other. Now, the, the, down, the downside on ours is we don't have control over any of these sub uh, DAOs or subgroups. If someone creates their own Bandito DAO behind their uh, culture of a different collection, we don't get any economic incentives. There's no royalties coming to us. Our influence is limited to, again, just the culture and what people look to us for. So I think 
it's a different model implementing the same concept, but each are going to have their own uh, positives and negatives. I think by trying to build the culture and not trying to gate it behind a specific uh, project where there might be a high floor price, it enables anyone can create their own Bandito DAO if there's a group of aligned people that pick up a sombrero trait off of any number of collections that the floor price could be 0.1 soul. Um, it really comes back to are people empowered and are they aligned behind that culture and are they motivated to organize and form their own? If they are, then that's exactly what I think the banditos uh, fall behind. And that I think is what our culture really stands for. And I would support and promote that. Um, Verse Frank, you know, you need to have what a youth's a hundred soul uh, now. I mean, he's limiting himself to who's actually going to be there. And if their focus is to raise the floor price, they're just going to increase that uh, increasingly. Um, and the only way to get new people in is to do continually more mints. And I don't think that's a scalable system or model. I think he's trying to assert way too much control and oversight because he has investors uh, that are expecting him to do that so he can extract value from those broader groups. How do you replace gating systems? Because even Bonquito Dao, if you have Bonquito Dao on one side, Bandito Dao on the other side, it's all the same culture. But to enter Bandito Dao, who are probably always going to be seen in a light that might be a bit more OG, a bit more respected, you need to be able to pay not only for an SMB, but for a Bandito SMB. And Bonquito Dao, if like Bandito Dao were to like become this like driving force, more people want to join it, more people buy it, the price goes up, obviously. How do you replace the gating system while keeping it a somewhat aligned group with people that you, I don't know, that you enjoy or whichever word is most adapted to that? Yeah, I think it goes back to um, your perspective. And if we empower that any group that really is aligning behind that is a true bandito, yeah, there's going to be people that are going to want to be in the OG one, and there is going to be a different floor price to it. And I think this actually goes back to Elaine uh, Orstrom uh, was a, uh, a, uh, a Nobel Prize winning economist uh, for her work on common resource pools. And what you actually see is there is so many parallels. And if you haven't looked up her research on common research pools or tragedy of the commons, highly suggest you do it. Because one of the things you have to do is whenever you have a common resource pool, which in the traditional world, that's like um, fish in fishing or, uh, uh, or forest for uh, logging and forestry. These are... Uh, resources that we all share that if one person was to exploit for personal gain, it would fuck over everyone else. And so it is over management, almost uh, cooperative management of these common resource pools to ensure long-term sustainability. And one of the first things you have to do is you have to gate it. You have to clearly define who is part of the system and who isn't. Now, I think there are very, there's a variety of levels of gating uh, because without having that strict, uh, um, that strict definition, anyone is able to uh, loot from that system. Now, this is also why it's not economically focused and it's culturally focused because when there's no treasury or economic uh, gain necessarily, you don't have people that are trying to uh, get into the banditos for economic gain. I mean, if you, if the floor price is what six seven hundred soul at this point, um, you're not going to earn back six seven hundred soul like people are talking about. If you join the Boogles, you earn that back in opportunities X, Y, and Z. 
Um, but if you're there for the culture, if you're there to build a community and help expand that, if you're there for those other reasons, then quite honestly, there's not much difference between joining the banditos versus joining the bonquitos versus starting your own with a different group of people. Um, and as long as we empower each other and look uh, highly upon each other for all acting uh, in the same way and we collaborate, um, I don't see too much of a difference. Uh, yeah, there's still going to be people that want to get into the main one. Um, but I, I think there are still limitations that we have to have in place uh, to not dilute that value and have uh, people try to extract what, uh, what little economic value they can from it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, I guess, because you have all the different little sub DAOs, and obviously I, the comparison between the DIG, the youth version and the Bandito version is that one of them is like aligned behind the project, but each of them together will be dis like misaligned, whereas in Bandito's, you're all aligned by the same culture but eventually you might have the own directions you have. And you know, which, I don't know. And, and you know what, if one of them, let's say Bonquito, they're already trying to do developer tools and other stuff where mm -hmm. we've not had a very strong uh, focus on delivering any type of products for Bandito DAO. Now, if Bonquito DAO is able to establish tools in, let's say DeFi protocols that they can generate revenue from and give revenue back to their, uh, to their Bonquito holders, you have a system where they can outpace us in floor price. Now, we will still have probably the OG reputation because I don't think you can take that away, but they may, there may be a power struggle in other aspects, in other areas, and I think that is good. I think we want people to have the opportunity to build their group to, be, to gain whatever they can because ultimately, as long as any of us are succeeding, it's growing the overall culture. And so it goes back to that perspective. Are we aligned on growing that culture? Or are we trying to extract value from the system? And that's why I push so heavily growth of the culture because we all win if everyone is succeeding. If it, let's say Bonquito Dow does step it up, let's say they do dev develop tools, they create uh, revenue back for their holders, and they get their floor price above SMBs. That's good for everyone, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, it's it's very interesting to hear the talk about all this because throughout this whole talk, you've mentioned different things. For example, the concept of like, for example, a thousand people with X amount of funds is the same thing as one person with a thousand times X those funds. Yep. Uh, that or the different cultures that come together. And it's kind of making me understand a lot better the article that you'd sent me earlier about ergodicity. I think that's how you pronunciate it. Yep. Which is interesting. I like. I thought that article was really interesting and I'll post it, I'll pin it to the top of the spaces for those who haven't read it. But how did you come across that? And do you like actively think about it like during like the things that you're promoting and that you're pushing towards? Or is it something that you noticed later on and realized that it kind of matched what you were thinking about? So it was highlighted to me uh, by Ravi Monkey. Um, I'm in several chats with him and it is something they use in finance and financial models and that. And I believe in some developer models as well. Um, but I mean, the overall concept, if you're not familiar, is very basically, if you have one investment of $100 and it goes south, uh, you lose everything. If you have 100 uh, investments of $1 and one goes south, you're perfectly fine. That core concept is 
what's really changed in Web3. All of our systems were built as non-ergotic systems in the traditional world because they're all based on physical location. You are never able to be in more than one physical location. Um, you are always going to be wherever you're sitting and wherever you're present at. That always adds restrictions in your pl uh, in place. That's why uh, oppression is such an issue because you can be oppressed based on your jurisdiction where you're located and the structures they put over you because of that. Now, in Web3, you don't have a physical presence. You can jump from one channel to another very easily. Like I was saying before, if you had a job, um, it's why I think professionalism is bullshit in Web3 is in the traditional world, you had to have a job and there was only limited options of how many jobs you had. You couldn't do usually multiple because you only had limited amount of time. Uh, and if you wanted to change jobs, you had to first find another equivalent job uh, and be able to apply and get it. And it was a, a ton of barriers to be able to do that. Versus in Web3, if you don't like where you're at or the people you're working with, uh, collaborating with, you just jump to a different channel. Um, there is no physical restriction that's in place. And this is the same thing going back why I talk about why I make jokes about being a dictator or a cult leader because it's the same thing. You isolate people as a dictator or a cult leader and you control information and you, uh, you basically exploit the non-ergotic system to get those people to have no choice but to follow what you're doing. Now, in Web3, it's the opposite. Because we're part of so many different communities, so many different groups, information is freely flowing. If you are being oppressed by any specific group, it's by your own choice because you're choosing to be present in that area instead of just moving on to somewhere else. So everything I found, all of these advantages all the different mechanisms on how I'm trying to shape what I'm doing all goes back to the fact that we're in a non-ergotic system or we're in a ergotic system in uh, Web3 and it's non-ergotic in the traditional world. That means legal systems. They're based fundamentally around non-ergotic system because it's all based on jurisdiction. It's why it doesn't work in Web3 because people could be in, it doesn't matter what location you're in. And to try to assert authority when you don't know the physical location of someone is impossible. Um, so it was really those, that article that Ravi sent me and I read through that it just kind of light bulb went off and I realized, holy shit, everything that we can do differently comes down to the fact that we're in non-ergotic or in ergotic systems. And you see this actually in everything. Our economy, the whole social uh, uh, view of how you're supposed to operate and act, cultures. So if you're on social media and people like to complain about cancel culture or whatever, um, and the issue is, is we have a non-ergotic social system. You are expected to operate a certain way. You're supposed to be professional. You're not supposed to take certain views. Well, in a non-ergotic system, if you violate that, if you don't act professionally, you get ostracized, you get removed from that system. And guess what? You don't necessarily have anywhere else to go. In Web3, if someone doesn't like your culture and say, uh, disagrees with a, a, a view you have, you can just find a group that has aligned views. Um, there's a lot of people online and a lot of people that have differing views. And so that does not then stop them from creating their own systems, their own tools, their own economies.
We don't, we live in a global economy where everything is non-ergotic, follows these systems. Everything floats up, even if you're working at uh, the country level, everything floats up to one global economy. We can have fractionalized economies with different systems. It's just, they're going to be different scales in Web3. And it's about empowering that and recognizing that we don't all have to agree. We don't all have to follow the same set of social norms. That's why I do a lot of things that people think are toxic. And surprisingly, I'm not having issues by doing it. I'm doing things that people think that I should be hated by others for. And I'm doing perfectly fine. It's because I realize these are non this is an ergotic system. And as long as I have the support and culture of a number of people, I can keep doing what I'm doing. No one has the same pressures that they are uh, experiencing from the traditional world. The traditional world is then like very different from what Web3 is even now. And it's going to be even more different if it went in the direction that you would are like trying to bring it towards. As Web3 grows, if it does, obviously, how do you think both of them will tie into each other? Because you're then you're going to have a Web2 and Web3 kind of maybe a conflict yeah. where I imagine some people will not want things to happen the way you want them to happen because it's not good for them economically. And then they have the power to screw things over. Exactly. How does that like mix? So this is actually why I stay away from anything that tries to go back to the traditional world. I hate merchandise. I hate anything that's using uh, Web3 to authentic uh, authenticate uh, collect original collectibles. Or I think Web3 works best when you have all of the operations end to end in Web3. Um, it goes back to, you know, data integrity is a huge thing within uh, pharma and quality. And the issue with the reason why data integrity is an issue is because no, not all systems are working in one ecosystem. You have multiple different computer systems or databases, and all of them are built differently, either different coding or they're just not directly linked. You have to build up gateways or interfaces to connect them. And the way a lot of work is done is data is then held manually, either manually transitioned from one system to another, manually uh, inscribed on a notepad or forms. Um, and every time you pull data out of one digital system, you open the risk of error. And I think this is where uh, you actually see Web3 shine because any data point can be a NFT. And if every data point that you have that you would use in any database or that was a NFT that can move freely through systems, like tokens can move between wallets and uh, different DeFi platforms, you never have the risk of data integrity issues because every single activity is transacted through the blockchain. Now, if you were to pull it off and let's say you have USDC, which is not native to Web3. We created and bridged US dollars to Web3. Now you have a tieback, and now you're imposing so many different uh, requirements and complexities because you're trying to recreate a Web2 asset that has legal structures and other enforcement mechanisms and trying to have it work within the Web3 web, uh, web system. You can make it work, yeah, but it's just a pain in the ass compared to just using Soul or using any other native asset that can uh, be handled 
completely end to end within the system. I think the most efficient systems are going to be the simplest ones, which are going to be the systems that end to end operate in web three. Um, now, again, there are going to be use cases where you're going to want to probably use web three for web two purposes, but I honestly view that as a as not that's more traditional world than actually web three. Um, because the control and the oversight is still retained and the authorities maintained on the web two on the traditional side. Yeah, that I makes mean, a lot of sense, surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly. Well, and it's an indication yeah, why I... it's why I go by the name Lieutenant Lollipop, and I don't have any interest in disclosing who I am because ultimately it doesn't matter. What Lieutenant Lollipop is a web three entity. And yeah. He's not identical to who I am as a person because I've had to be a professional most of my life and I want to be saying half the shit I'm saying uh, on there. Um, but by having that and not thinking I need to be my actual name or my actual uh, person in there, I can allow Lieutenant Lollipop to be who he needs to be in that system to achieve the outcome that he needs. And... I can't, I mean, it's almost like I fractionalized a part of myself into Web3, and that's represented through Lieutenant Lollipop. And when I die, all the data, everything that I've put onto the online as Lieutenant Lollipop is one cohesive system. You can track everything I've said, every spaces I've uh, been on that's recorded, every message I've sent in Discord, every tweet I put together. You can take all of that, combine it, and get any uh, perspective of, what was Lieutenant Lollipop? Who was he? And you can have a very defined persona and image of someone. And that is because I'm not trying to conflate or convolute it with who I am as a person. Now, I do bring up like my background in pharma and other things just to give uh, more credit or uh, weight to some of the points that I'm trying to discuss to understand that it is coming from an educated uh, side usually. But that's more uh, a side thing than... Uh, really trying to do what I'm trying to do here. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Because the reason I say I'm surprised is because a lot of, there have been a lot of narratives during like even just this past year of people saying we're going to be the bridge from Web3 to Web2. I mean, I think most notably OK Bears mentioned it. A bunch of others have mentioned it. But, and I've always definitely seen it as something as Web3 somewhat being of, of an evolution as Web2, which is why we call it Web3, right? But the way you're portraying it is really, a situation where you can have both that evolve somewhat separately and somewhat distinctly and you can have your own identity on chain you can have your own a different thing and that's really nice because you can definitely show who you are or maybe just fractionalize your identity is the way you said it or even just show an identity that you're not able to share within the limitations of like real life is what i'm going to say well it's so in my perspective, and I went off on some rants back in like July, August of last year, I see Web3 as a completely separate dimension of the world. And you can understand what the, the difference I see as dimensions is two-factor authentication and why that works. It's about being physically present versus having the digital keys. They are two completely separate systems that are not interconnected in any way that only one central point is able to have both of those points at any given time. I see that the same thing as kind of Web 2 um, or Web 3, where you can have two-factor authentication uh, in Web 3 the same way you just flip it. Now, hackers can have access to your private keys, 
But if you gate your uh, assets behind a something that needs a vote, so a multi-sig, so it needs social uh, al- alignment on it as well, now you have two factors in place. You have the electronic and you have the social. Now, each of those are two separate dimensions because one cannot directly impact the other uh, without having influence in that vector as well. So I see Web3 as identically the, as the same thing. I see all of these different areas. They're just different dimensions that can't interact with one another unless we intersect them, be it social dimensions, economic dimensions, uh, electronic dimensions, physical dimensions. And it's about understanding where those things can intersect uh, and how you can leverage those different elements, those different dimensions to protect or to achieve the outcome you're trying to. Yeah, that's really cool. It's a different, I've, I never thought about it that way, which is, uh, it's definitely one of the points of like the, the spaces is to like understand more in depth because I'm genuinely curious about these things. It's also why, so, I mean, it's why I don't have much concern about what I'm doing. People always poke yeah. fun at the logic of what I'm trying to say because most of the things I say are illogical or they seem idealistic. But that's because we're looking at it at, from a logical frame of reference where we're used to everything working logically. Well, people aren't logical. Social systems aren't logical. And through recognizing that you can use other avenues to exploit logic-based systems, especially because Web3 is all logic-based systems, um, you're able to do a lot more than if you think you have to uh, interact just via code or via uh, online interactions. Yeah. Okay. This is super cool. <laughs> um, uh, I really like it. And it's just, uh, it's pretty crazy. I wonder how it'll all go. I like, uh, genuinely, it's interesting. So what do you think are your next steps? Because you've done, you've called out a couple people, you've burned a couple NFTs, you've burned a couple thousands of dollars worth of money. Uh, people have been pissed off at you for that. <laughs> Who are you going to piss off next? What are you What are you planning on doing next? I have no fucking clue. Um, I take every day Let's go. step at a time. Um, and honestly, I think if you're trying to look for the next thing, you're not going to see what's right in front of you because you have some preconceived view of what you should see and you're looking for that. But if you're looking for something, you're never going to find, what, find it, quite honestly. Um, this is also why I push, I throw a lot out to the Tao Te Ching and I link a lot to their uh, messages because... A lot of these things are, again, they sound illogical because it's all about the perspective that we're looking at. Um, I just take everything one step at a time. Most of the times, like when I've attacked even the Solana Foundation, uh, I even told Austin in a DM, if you think I was planning this and I woke up this morning saying I was going to attack the Solana Foundation, you're wrong. This was all done spur of the moment. None of my tweets ever are proofread. I always do everything stream of conscious. I just type out what I'm thinking at the time and I hit send. Um, that's what I found has worked best for me. I think it gives the purest view of what I'm trying to say. Even if there's errors and inconsistencies, I'm a person. I'm going to have errors and inconsistencies. But what I've also recognized is when I make spelling errors in my tweets, when people attack me for having bad grammar or uh, misspelling things, I know instantly who to ignore because it instantly tells me who's looking at the content of what I'm saying versus who's looking at the just the execution of it. If I'm trying to convey a view and have a discussion on the content, I'm not going to waste my time talking to someone that's hyper-focused on the presentation of it. So it instantly tells me, 
okay, you're not worth my time. And I can focus my time on people that are actually understanding and want to uh, have a discussion on the actual content. So I, you'll see I do a lot of things oddly, and 99% of the time it's a filtering mechanism, just so that because I'm one person, I am not going to be hiring someone to manage my DMs or uh, manage even like these spaces and that. You're lucky if I even put a, uh, it in my schedule. Um, I don't want that type of lifestyle, so I'm not going to do it. Instead, I'm going to just do what I think is best, and I'll use these different mechanisms to filter people out and focus and prioritize my time, uh, my effort, who I'm discussing things with uh, by doing that. Uh, this is like the epitome of both fuck it, we ball, and woke up and chose violence. <laughs> both those memes. <laughs> I woke up and I decided to fuck the Salada Foundation <laughs> today. <laughs> fuck someone else the other day. Ultimately, <laughs> and that's why you don't see me follow through on a lot of stuff because it's not always about the end impact. It's exactly why I don't have any issue that I stepped down from uh, the election for Monkey Dow, even though I had a feeling I was going to win a seat. Because ultimately, it's about the impact that I have. And just by putting these messages out there and basically throwing even just one punch, that's going to change how things go moving forward. And sometimes that's all you need. I like to throw a lot of ideas out there, a lot of perspectives, and I guarantee you there's one or two people each time I do it that I change their, their line of thinking a bit. And, you know, maybe down the road as they're developing a project or a tool or something that comes back and they make an update because of what they've learned from what I've done. And that's why people say, I don't do anything. I don't build anything. I don't follow through on anything because they're looking at it from a different perspective. I'm just trying to create impact, change how people think, how people view things. And I'm hoping people are empowered and they step up and they run with things. I want to empower others. I don't want to be the one that's driving everything. I've built several governance systems. And the one thing I learned is every time that I built a system and tried to hand it over, everyone's looking back at me to keep it going, even if I try to take a step back. So instead, I try to set up systems or change people's minds or empower people so that they take the lead. They build the system on their own with the same understanding or a new way of thinking that I hopefully can impart there. And that's where I see my part in building Web3 and just changing those minds. You'll never probably see me release a token, release a mint, release a tool. Um, because that's not where I think I'm going to add value. Uh, people are just terrified of you burning their NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you mentioned that you had to leave in 10 minutes. So I think we can like close down the space. I just have like one last question to you is I know that you've been on quite a few spaces. Is there ever something that people don't ask or that you've never really been able to mention that you'd like to mention? No, I do a very good job of talking about what I'm excited about. Um, and honestly, I don't ever prepare or anything going into any of these. Every answer I usually yeah. do, I'm answering on the spot. And it's, again, like my tweet stream of conscious, how I'm thinking. That's why sometimes you'll notice I ramble and I might go off on tangents that I realized that was nowhere near the original question. Um, so, you know, I tend to find my way to the things I want to say. Um, and... Yeah, um, I'm always open to answering anyone's questions, though. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say, if you want, we can, like, I don't know if there are that many people who want to ask questions. My intention at first is to, like, 
have the discussion and then see if anyone wants to ask questions. So if anyone does want to ask questions, request to speak and I'll I'll come I'll bring you up. We have 10 minutes and uh otherwise it was really nice talking to you, man. Yeah. I'm very I'm happy sure. we could Thanks do this. Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone that listened who like I'm gonna do this thing once a week. The podcast is called A Work in Progress because I couldn't find a better name. And then I found the name and I thought it was great because the name was A Work in Progress. Um, yeah, next one should be with Brian from Hyperspace. And then maybe Swerver and Yako and a bunch of different people. All right, please so, yeah. have me as your first. No, I was really happy to have you as my first, man. <laughs> it was really cool because like, I think I DM'd you first when you had the, the beef with Frank as many others. And... Um, and we had a really cool discussion. I was like, it would be nice to have it on Spaces because it's it's so much more fluid. And yeah. you really set aside time to say, okay, we're going to like talk during like two hours. It's going to be cool. We're going to have this conversation and we'll we'll see what gives. And uh, it's opened my eyes to a bunch of different things. And that's really, like, I kind of want to do this with the podcast to talk to people, see their perspective, even if it's something that I don't necessarily agree with and just learn from it. And maybe other people get to learn from it at the same time. Yep. Fully agree. So, well, with that being said, um, no one's asking questions. So I think we can close it here. Thanks a lot for coming. Next week, same time. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll see you soon, man. Yep. Thanks. Have a good day. You too.